Hi, welcome back to The Shift. I'm Shay Candish, the General Secretary here at the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association. The nursing and midwifery professions have changed incredibly since the days of Florence Nightingale. Evolutions in science, nursing and professional recognition have all played their part in what nurses do in the modern health setting. Today, I'm incredibly honoured to be joined by a giant in Australia's nursing history, Valda Wiles AM. Valda commenced her nursing career in 1956 and was a pioneer in the field of critical care nursing. She was also instrumental in winning today's clinical care structure and the introduction of clinical nurse specialists in our nursing teams. On top of this, she was also a union stalwart and co-authored a book on the history of critical care in Australia. For her work, she was awarded an Order of Australia in 1997. Thanks so much for joining us today, Valda. It's my pleasure to be asked. And at the outset, I'd like to congratulate you, Shay, on your wonderful achievement as to be appointed as the General Secretary of the New South Wales Nurses Association. That is a marvellous achievement. Oh, thank you so much. That's so wonderful. Look, to start off, I think um, I've read your history and it is just so remarkably impressive. But I'd love if you could just start off by really talking to us about this incredible nursing career that you've had Um, and really some of the where it started in the beginning in relation to critical care which sort of wasn't really even a thing all the way at the beginning was it no can you talk me through a bit about that shall I begin where I began yes in general nursing yes that may be the easiest way to do it and my story is very typical of nurses in those days I grew up in a country town Kutamundra and I always planned to be a nurse. And I started off in the district hospital, and although it had marvellous experience, and I've heard it recounted in many of your podcasts, particularly the most recent with James. Yes. um, It's a marvellous experience, no question. I realised I wasn't getting the education or training that I believed I needed in Mm -hmm. order to properly care for my patients. So I applied uh, to Sydney Hospital, in 1956 and that's where I did my four years of hospital-based training. Uh, Do you need me to explain what that entailed in those days or not? Uh, Look I think it's interesting to explore what didn't exist you know looking through your history I was really I suppose um, struck by how little critical care um, capacity we had when you were starting. Talk me through that a bit. There was no such thing as (laughs) what we call critical care nursing. I want you to conceptualise a world in which we did not have cardiac arrest. There was no external cardiac compression. Don't get me wrong, there were hospitals that did cardiac surgery and would do open cardiac massage Mm -hmm. in certain occasions, and we had our thoracic units. And there was a few respiratory units, Mm -hmm. but there was no such thing that we know today as external cardiac massage, Mm. there was no artificial kidney, there was no coronary care, Mm. there was um, no, nurses didn't give intravenous injections. Incredible. They had intravenous therapy but it was of a very basic type, no such thing as total parenteral nutrition or any of the more sophisticated systems. We didn't even have IV pumps. If you regulated an infusion, it was simply by counting the, the drops. drops. We and do learn that one in yeah. uni, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> with the hope of not having and to you use spend it. spent hours <laughs> running around and later in your sleep counting the drops and hoping it all went correctly. You didn't, right. Um, we didn't have the kind of IV access we have now. 
you just had a metal needle that yeah. went into a vein. And if you had to cut down on, you had to do cut down some bigger veins, arteries or, or, or um, the vein itself, you didn't have CVPs. The repertoire for nurses to monitor a patient was a sphygmomanometer mm -hmm. manual, your temperature, aneroid, ordinary mercury thermometer, and uh, just what you could see and hear and feel in terms of the patient. And lots of intuition. And lots of intuition, <laughs> yes, which came from our constant contact. You know, there was no question our clinical practice component was mm. exceptional. Mm. And I recall see, seeing my first CVP line. Mm -hmm. I was in charge of a medical ward and the patient had come back from the operating theatre and I saw this thing dangling out of his jugular and I called over the consultant and I said to him, what is this thing <laughs> in my patient's neck? And he said, look, sister, I have no idea what it is. It's just some newfangled device that the anaesthetists use to make themselves feel important. <laughs> and I just took it with the same disdain as he did and I left it there. And to this day, I don't know, even went home with it in his neck. Wow. My first experience of the new technology was the artificial kidney mm -hmm. in 1958. I was a second year nurse in Ward 17, which was the research and um, uh, Kanamatsu Institute ward with Dr. Malcolm White, later Professor White, and his medical team. There was I was the nurse appointed to the team and there was one sister who was responsible to the team. And this is what's the only artificial kidney in Australia. Incredible. And we had to prime it with five litres. I used to have to come on duty early before they threw any soda in the washing machine, which was really the uh, steriliser, mm -hmm. which is where we boiled all our monometal um, so that we didn't get sodium mixed into the cuprophane to go into the kidney. And then we had to prime that five litres of blood. We had no pumps, so we had to have chains in the, on the ceiling and by gravity let the five litres flow in, oh hoping goodness. to goodness. It was heparinized, but hoping to goodness there'd be no problems or yes. we'd have to start again oh. a lot of blood. At the same time as we were doing this, the doctors had prepared the fluid mm. because we prepared all of our dialyzing fluid. Mm. And the vascular surgeon will be cutting down onto the arteries and vein the, in the inguinal region mm. to get IV access, which was with a glass cannula. And how often were they having to have that kind of It went on dialyze? continuously because we had people flown in from all over the country. Mm -hmm. And the dialysis itself took about 10 hours. Yes. And after the patient was dialysed, you couldn't move them because he was full body heparinization yes, sometimes. right. The other thing is that at the, a signal from the doctor, the minute they released the clamps to let the blood start, the extracorporeal going into the patient, I used to have to start frantically recording the blood pressure continuously. Mm -hmm. You couldn't stop until the you had a stable blood pressure. Yes. So you had very sore ears after one shift in the, the renal unit. That's yes. fascinating. What a change now. Wow. Absolutely, when you see about 100 mils. And, yes. You know, it's so frequent. Yes. And so there was enormous... The, the doctors were so courageous. I really mean this. They were in unknown territory and they had enormous ethical considerations 
to be factored into who went on to the artificial kidney. Mm. And so you had one in Australia and that meant one person using at a time. So one person got life-saving treatment. At, at a time. So they had to, you know, to be perfectly honest, the kind of people that when I walk into a chronic dialysis unit now, none of those persons would have survived in my day. Yeah. It's only those that had acute conditions People with chronic conditions were dialysed once to give them a chance, but we knew that if that didn't work, that there wouldn't be a future for them. Oh, goodness. And it was really... Really tough. Yes, it yeah. was. And I don't think people think about that. With It's easy to look in retrospect, but it was really brave new world for mm. those doctors and nurses. They were just marvellous. And, um, and then my first CPR was like... <laughs> the proverbial seeing Lazarus rise from the dead. <laughs> I mean, it was just it was just marvellous to see. You know, in the past, you just said someone had died. They'd yes. come in with a cardiac arrest or an acute myocardial infarct. And here they were being resuscitated. Mm. It's marvellous. And so talk me through what were the advances at the time that made the resuscitation possible and, you know, what was your experience of watching that for the first time? The simple... <laughs> external cardiac compression. Mm. I mean, it might sound, but it was. Mm. And so was that... If someone drowned or, you know, came in with... You just use the Holger Nielsen or whatever. Mm. Or use open cardiac massage. They may attempt that in the the, uh, ward. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But also, that is a good question, Shay, because at about that time too, we were getting better ventilators. Mm. So we were able, you know, and intubation methods... Uh, intubation took was very different in those days and of course there was a lot of tetanus etc um, but uh, yes I mean with cardiac research the main thing was to resuscitate them at the time mm. as it is today and get effective circulation going and yeah. I think it's interesting the principles haven't changed so no, much but obviously the comprehensive scale of education yes. has really shifted oh, so absolutely. you know the combination of understanding how to give cardiac massage and when yes. and coupling that with the capacity to ventilate patients must have changed talk to yeah. us a bit about ventilation I found that really fascinating when I was uh, reading about your experiences well um, before I went overseas to study it more, well, you had very, we had very basic machines. Uh, you know, so we used to have the Beaver ventilator, mm-hmm. but it was very simple. It, there wasn't the sophistication with the, you know, mo- modifying the volumes and so forth that you have today, and mm. and the and the access. You d- you didn't have your cuff tubes. You didn't have you didn't have any of those mm-hmm. things or measuring the tidal volume or so forth mm. it was very primitive mm. and it was run by the anaesthetists yes is that right so it wasn't you had, really you a had training no 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 well no the nurse cared for the patient on the end of the machine but you didn't have nurses skilled in the care of patients in terms of understanding about tidal volume and all that sort of thing mm. that was supervised by the anaesthetist mm. and when I talked about the anaesthetist and this this was a watershed moment for me so here we are we have the nurses just trained to record the vital signs etc not give IV injections so we had a lot of patients with tetanus who would 
you know, spasm and need intravenous medication. Mm. So we used to have the anaesthetist sleeping at night or available during the day to come and give the, the patient, if it was tetanus or whatever, mm-hmm. their medication. And so one day our director of nursing uh, called us all together, we were charge nurses, and said, Sister, the director of anaesthetics have said to me that if I won't provide a nurse who will give this treatment to the patients, that he'll create someone who will. And of course that raised the spectre of technicians and physicians assistants. And I was shocked. It's as though someone had thrown water in my face. Mm. And I suddenly thought, nursing is, I woke up, nursing is changing. We can't afford to see it fragmented all for the sake of developing more skills. Mm. And we have to meet this new challenge. And so that's when I decided to go overseas and get as much teaching in the air and, ed- and experience, of course, in the areas that I felt were that I could contribute to, such as intensive care and coronary care. Mm. And so that's what I did. Fascinating. And given that then became, you know, the, the, the groundwork for the co-authoring of your yeah. book about um, critical care yes. nursing, I think yeah. is really remarkable. Yes, that came many years. The, the concept of critical care came uh, probably about another 10 years after that with the increasing in developments in medicine and technology. Mm. You said that by the time I, I mean, I, most of what I wanted to do was we had, no, of course, at places like St Vincent's you had intensive care, of course you had cardiac surgery being done there, thoracic surgery, same at North Shore, etc. Um, not to limit those areas. But the whole idea of being able to receive education in intensive care and coronary care was more freely available in the, in the United Kingdom and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I just set myself that task of learning as much as I could in order to bring that expertise back to this country and start to train nurses in those fields. And you really have taken a, um, I suppose, a really forthright position over the years around advancing the interests of nurses. I'd love to hear more about your union work as well, because you've taken the same attitude in that space as well. Can you tell me a bit about what you've done? Well, when, when I came back, as I said, there hadn't been a lot of development. A few of the courses, when I talk about an intensive course, I'm talking about something that was half a day a week, mm-hmm. six, six, 26 weeks long. Right? Not enough. Not <laughs> enough. <laughs> Better than and nothing, so, though, I suppose, right? You know, that's what my director of nursing <laughs> said when I went in and I said, look, you know, we have to give more time. Of course, they were integrated theory and practice within hospital settings. And she said to me, don't you think they're training sufficient, sister? And I said, no, I don't. She said, well, we'll have to stop it. I said, no, something's better than nothing. (laughs) She said, that's your first lesson, sister. (laughs) Learn to evolve, you know. Something is better than nothing and then work on from there, which is what we did. And then we got together with um, Dr. Bob Wright and Jan Stowe, the nurse educator in intensive care at St. Vincent's Hospital. Mm -hmm. And together we decided what what did we believe was the core components of an intensive care course so that if we said a nurse was qualified 
we knew that it wouldn't matter where she went or where she had been trained, she would have those core skills, right. which was critical for standardising practice. Yes. And then what happened, going back to the union, I was, as you know, the, the day after I graduated, I joined the union <laughs> because in those days you couldn't join if you weren't a student. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I was had the privilege of being the delegate from my hospital and I might have... Rita Martin subsequently (laughs) (laughs) succeeded as the second delegate many years later, which was a wonderful uh, privilege. Anyhow, so what we did, we had Miss Henlon was the head then, and she had four of her uh, staff, organisers, four other organisers. And so through the the meetings, we'd meet every month, etc., I was slowly trying to get the concept. At that stage, if you were in nursing, the only ways you could progress was to become an administrator Mm. or an educator. Mm -hmm. In the wards, all of the student nurses were caring for the patient and they'd only have one or two sergeants depending on the size of the ward, etc. So I thought, this is so wrong because it's the patient who should have the most expert nurse caring for them. And yet our classrooms and administrative offices were becoming mausoleums of our best nurses Mm. because the only way they could advance was to go out of the clinical area. So this is what I've discussed with the union, you know. We need to have a clinical career structure in nursing. And may I say, I don't like the word to be saying I all the time. (laughs) I'm very embarrassed because we achieve nothing without the support of our colleagues and and their shared vision and and support and teamwork. So that's very important. People have to be gracious about it, you know. So what happened was that um, we had this great meeting. I'm not saying that was the only thing. Always salaries and conditions were foremost. But we also decided we'd tag on this business of nurses are becoming more skilled. Mm. And so we had this big meeting in the town hall and then we moved a motion to march on Parliament House, which nurses had never done before, Wow! and stay there 24-7, which we did, Mm -hmm. until the Premier negotiated with Miss Henlon and the union to put up uh, the first work value case in our history. Yes. And so um, I was, the Premier finally agreed and with the pressure from doctors and everything because we weren't admitting elective surgery or anything like that at Mm -hmm, that stage. mm -hmm. Not to penalise those who needed care, but elective surgery. I'm sorry to say that, but a lot of people would not like the idea of having elective surgery. However, it only lasted a week because they'd never seen nurses take such a stand before. And so he appointed four people, including myself as the clinical person, to write the work value case for the association, which then went to court. And that led to us having all nurses presenting evidence that it was nurses that were running the ventilators and the mm. dialysis machines and doing all this extra um, intravenous therapy, total parenteral nutrition, all of that had come in in that time. And it was very interesting trying to find that evidence as mm. the clinical nurse. Mm. I won't go there. It's a, it's a story in itself. <laughs> and so um, they agreed that all nurses who'd done post-registration nursing courses either here or abroad, 
that were recognised by the NRB mm-hmm. and they set up an external advisory committee involving those of us who were in hospitals um, were provided with um, an additional loading. And from then on, that was the first step. And then slowly, over the next 10 years, we advocated for a clinical career structure. I'd looked at um, models in the United in in Europe mm-hmm. and in uh, the United States, which was much you know very advanced there, mm-hmm. and decided just on two categories that we could realistically probably achieve without major upheaval, and those were that of clinical nurse specialist and nurse consultant, and um, so by advocating at various conferences with the Royal Australian Nursing Federation, with the Nurses Association. I was also on the Council of the College of Nursing, New South Wales. We had the Matrons Institute, all of those, and they they engaged with us and they could see the value of having a clinical career structure. Some of them were a bit resistant, mm-hmm. but they were finally persuaded. And so, as you know, I think it was in 1986 six that we the nurses association achieved the first clinical career structure for nurses and it continues to be the foundation of our um, pay structure to this day which is remarkable Uh, i think it says so much about you know the collective um, advocacy that you undertook at that time because exactly as you said not only could you not have done it on your own but you you wouldn't have had the um political will and capital had you been on your own so i think it says a lot about you know the work that was done to bring nurses together around Absolutely. that. And how important our professional organisation, seriously, and I'm, I'm sorry, but I do believe it, that the Nurses Association has been foremost with all these changes, whether it's to do with salaries and conditions or um, career structures, and also so many other things they do mm. in defending nurses. I think you're right. We do like to consider ourselves pretty, um, you know, first and foremost on a number of issues, particularly relating to social justice. But Uh, I think the work, it's so exciting to hear from a member that, you know, has been so instrumental in actually delivering that change through our democratic structures as well within the union, which I just think is, you know, really remarkable. And we talk about it frequently about how that's how we advance change um, internally as well. Uh, It's so exciting to hear you give that sort of historical perspective of it too. Well, I remember, uh, you know, one of the work, after that we did others, but I remember being disappointed. Oh, we didn't get the career structure. I remember Miss Helen saying, Valda, you know, you've got to look at the realities. She said, we couldn't get it for them this time, but we got it more for the educators. (laughs) She said, it'll be the clinicians the next time. And that's how, you know, they know the political realities and that's why you need your professional organisations because they just know how to go about it. That's a very good analysis. And it's back to what we were saying before, isn't it? You you know, sometimes you've got to take what you can get. Yes, that's exactly (laughs) it. Rather than it being all or nothing, you know, we make those incremental advancements at the time. Exactly, that's what it's, evolution rather than revolution. Yes, yes, that's a nice way of putting it. Yes. Well, thank you, Vowder. It's been fabulous talking with you. I could talk to you all day, (laughs) but I'm getting the 20-minute time mark. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like us to cover off? No, I can't think of anything. One thing I'm going to mention is the book because I think people are going to want to um, find that. So <laughs> thank you. Um, I will mention that as we wrap up. But it's just been such a pleasure. Honestly, My I pleasure. could just sit here and talk all day. It's so fascinating. 
thank Just you keep so up the good work you're doing no it's critical <laughs> oh, thank that you. we have registered nurses in all clinical domains and i don't care whether it's aged care disability or where and the proper nursing ratios completely agree yeah. we can't thank stop until we get them no. that's for sure well, thank you so much for your time, Valda. It's been such a pleasure. For anyone that's interested in uh, finding out more about Valda's book, it's called There's a Bird in My Hand and a Bear in My Bed. Um, get in touch with us. We'll pop some details in the show notes, but we can refer people to where they thank can you. find that. And it just has such a fascinating history, particularly if you're a bit of a critical care nerd like yeah. I would consider myself to be. Um, it really helps to, uh, I think, understand how wonderfully fortunate we are in some instances yes. to be able to intervene in the ways that we can um, so thank you for thank all of your work it's been just so fabulous chatting with you today thank you Shay. thanks so much Vada. we'll be right back after a quick word about the new south wales nurses and midwives association's continuing professional education program did you know the new south wales nurses and midwives association has a new online cpd portal with over 200 free online cpd courses across a wide range of nursing and midwifery topics plus the ability to track your learning, it's definitely worth checking out. If you're a New South Wales NMA member, just log in to the member portal, Member Central, to access this program. And if you're not yet a member, make sure you join today. That's it for this episode of The Shift with Shay. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Valda and I look forward to seeing you in a fortnight with more stories from the world of nursing and midwifery. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you have an interesting story you'd like to share with us, please get in touch by emailing us on the shift podcast at nswnma.asn.au. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise that this land was never ceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.